When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. England break all sorts of records to make a third ever European Championship semi-final with a 4-0 hammering of Ukraine in Rome. Football is indeed almost at the front door, almost home. Meanwhile in Asia, Denmark get over the line despite a fight back from Czech Republic as Patrick Schick, Thomas Delaney and Kasper Dahlberg all traded goals in a 2-1 win for Denmark in Baku. I am Jake from What If Football, this is Euro Daily. Podcast episode 28, available on Amazon Aircast, Apple, Spotify or any other good podcasting platforms and we are there three days a week after the European Championships. New content, old content, rejigged content as well. We're also on Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash whatifootball, where for the price of a small monthly donation, that's £3 a month, you can get seven days a week content after the European Championships podcasts, video game content and so much more. So let's get stuck in to today's show and apologies if this podcast is short, it hurts to speak. Let's get stuck in. So we go to Rome, we kick off this podcast in Rome. England 4, Ukraine nil. England's highest ever knockout stage win. The biggest European Championships knockout stage win since 2000, since the Netherlands beat Yugoslavia 6-1. The first European Championships team to keep five clean sheets to start a tournament and only the second team to start a major tournament with five clean sheets, equaling the tally of Italy in 1990. Gareth Southgate has won the most knockout stage matches in major tournaments as England manager with four, beating Alf Ramsey, beating Bobby Robson, both sirs in their own right. All these records that England have broken, but how did they do it? Well, Jadon Sancho came in fresh from being announced as a Manchester United player. Convenient? Nah. Mason Mount also came in and it was reversing to a 4-3-3 as opposed to the 3-4-3 that England matched up Germany with in the last 16. Meanwhile, Ukraine were unchanged both in their shape and in their personnel. So England, they've uh, started 
It's like the European Championship games, kind of on the front foot in most of the games, haven't they? Hitting the post on three occasions. Started fairly tamely against Germany, though as Germany looked to snuff that out. But here again against Ukraine, bang up against it again. Raheem Sterling was finding some decent spaces on the left and uh, fed Harry Kane. A sumptuous, absolute sumptuous pass. One of the assists of the tournament, really. Sliding it through four, four Ukrainian players in yellow. Harry Kane slides in. 1-0, easy. And England, like I say, they usually start well. Good link-up between Sterling and Kane. Are they the new Teddy Sheringham and Alan Shearer from Euro 96? Well, they've equal to that in terms of getting to a semi-final, like, of course, Shearer and Sheringham. The SAS did in 1996. And to be fair, Ukraine barely had a kick before the goal. They sat so deep, they were so scared of um, England getting forward and, you know, punishing them. And that's exactly what England did, didn't they? Raheem Sterling was doing very well. Luke Shaw as well on the left-hand side. They've struck up a fairly decent partnership. Luke Shaw, incredibly penetrative with his with his runs beyond the uh, right wing back there for Ukraine. And I thought Jaden Sancho had a fantastic game as well. He was carrying very well, very well into the final third. They were, he was a very good playmaker, let's be honest, and he deserved his place in the team. And again, that continuous rotation of the right wing spot with, of course, Bukayo Saka, he was uh, ruled out through injury, was a doubt beforehand as well. And Sancho more than stepped into the stepped into the breach, didn't he really? Tested the goalkeeper as well, could have been 2-0 and it could have been 2-0 again through uh, Declan Rice as well with an absolute pile driver. He got a bit carried away there, couldn't he? But could have been three before half time. And um, what we saw from Harry Kane, he was not dropping as deep as what he, uh, what he has been doing. And that's purely because Ukraine sat so deep and give England so much of the ball, it was unreal. And they were punished for it in the first half. And uh, midway through the first half, it did feel a bit more group stagey football from England. They were conserving their energy. They were trying to find little bits of spaces to pick up a Ukraine sort of disallowed uh, Ukraine spaces so he could get get a second goal, but it, it just wasn't coming. And uh, it was a lot, a lot more territory a lot more attacking wise from England and that was uh, that was the order of the day and of course in the second half it's immediately broken open isn't it Luke Shaw to Harry Maguire a goal made in Manchester the perfect antidote to the end of the first half where Ukraine were kind of getting into it a little bit they were venturing forward they were seemingly not scared by England and then obviously a lovely set piece goal that England have been craving really for the uh, first few games and provided it 46 minutes and then Luke Shaw continued a wonderful five minutes. Unbelievable in his delivery. Mason Mount for once was given a lot of room to uh, provide him with the cross and Shaw delivered. Harry Kane header, now tied with Raheem Sterling on three goals. And uh, the ball was won back incredibly well in the midfield. Mason Mount obviously instrumental in getting that goal. And no real clamour for Jack Grealish in this game after, after such a great performance. But I think Grealish will get his chance in the semi-final against against Denmark as it is. And Harry Kane could have had a hat-trick. He would have been, probably, I've not checked this up, but he would have been the first English player to score multiple hat-tricks at multiple tournaments. And it would have been a superb goal when it a volley, but uh, it shows he's quite confident, really, in his, uh, in his performances after the Germany goal. I think that brought a lot back for him, really. Would have been a superb hat-trick as well. And John Henderson finally gets his England goal, I think, after... 62 caps was it and what a what a header again another set piece and all the set pieces like London buses you wait for one and two come at once obviously that is the uh, analogy we're using there and to be fair at that point Ukraine were just all over the shop really it was far too easy from a Ukraine standpoint and uh, 
England just hammered home. It was just, it was lovely to watch. It was easy. Um, we did ponder it might have been, it might have been a bit like the World Cup in 2018 in Russia where there was that monkey off the back in terms of the last 16 game. Obviously, Colombia, Colombia beaten on penalties. That was a big monkey off England's back. It was their first, you know, penalty win in 22 years and obviously beating Germany. That's not happened for 55 years at a knockout stage in a major tournament. And like the Sweden win, the 2-0 win in Saransk or Samara. I think I get those two mixed up all the time. And uh, like this, it was a fairly simple routine win against a team in yellow. So there's another omen for you. Of course, they want to avoid any other omens between 2018 and losing to a top 10 uh, European team in the semi-finals. That being Denmark, of course. But uh, we'll get, the, get to that, you know, road somewhere down the line there on Wednesday. I think the second goal changes the game, obviously, completely. Ukraine were growing into the game, as it were, then. And it was more of the same sort of stuff. We were a bit quicker, a bit more attacking, a bit more territory. But as I say, Ukraine, probably one of the poorer teams in the knockout stage so far, probably would have been on a par this game in terms of difficulty with the Czech Republic game. And it was going that way where, you know, England only managed to get the one goal, didn't they? But... uh, here, that set-piece goal completely opens the floodgates and then England can push on, can't they, really? Two set-piece goals, I mean, <laughs> these criticisms of scoring set-piece goals, but it shows that um, it's been well drilled in the uh, in the training sessions and England scored, were heavily reliant on set-piece goals in the uh, 2018 World Cup. Nine of 12 were scored through set-pieces this time round. Obviously, it's two from eight goals we've scored um, England have scored sorry and uh, two of those have come from set pieces so they kept the ball very well high up the pitch and it was by the end of it it was an utter domination wasn't it really and uh, Gareth Southgate clearly kept his uh, kept his feet on the ground kept his players feet on the ground after a uh, what could have been a monumental win it was a monumental win against Germany and uh, bringing them down to earth obviously coming to Rome different change of scenery I think helped them in the end and clearly helped them with a 4-0 win there and for me Mount Rushmore of England managers is well perched on it now he's um, the only England manager to take England to multiple semi-finals the first since Alf Ramsey forever, sorry and uh, 66 and 68 of course and uh, yeah he's well up there with uh, Venables with Robson with Ramsey, of course, and who knows, he might equal Sir Alf Ramsey by getting to a final next week. But of course, that is somewhere in the future there, isn't it? So we go to Ukraine. What did they do? Did they put up much of a fight? Well, I thought Sidorchuk was mopping up okay, at least in the first half, you know, when tails were up. There was definitely a, a sinking of heads exercise after the uh, after the second goal. And obviously the uh, vicinity of the two goals being in the 46th and 50th minute they didn't really have chance to sort of move out of the blocks after the second goal and regain that advantage and obviously after 3-0 with 40 minutes to go it's pretty much game over isn't it unfortunately for uh, I say that with a smile on my face but unfortunately Mason Mount I don't think was given too much joy in part of that uh, tight-knit midfield three which included Zinchenko as well which he got about a fair bit but obviously as I say it was a collective sinking of the heads in the midfield three there after the third goal. He wasn't given too much joy, but of course, when he did get room, he provided Luke Shaw for the ball, the pre-assist for 3-0 when he did get room. And Ukraine didn't really offer much. They didn't offer as much as what I thought they would. Yarmolenko was clearly unfit by my reckoning anyway. But Roman Yaronchuk, he was pouncing on that sloppiness. The um, only 
you know, figment of sloppiness that England provided really in the uh, in the first half or in the game, to be fair. Carried the ball well and easily Ukraine's best of the chance of the game and it wasn't really... I mean, it was, he, he sort of, it was tame, wasn't it, from my boy and obviously that, that road now, that train is now pulling into the station. It's broken down, unfortunately. Two goals from five games or whatever. You know, he did all right. He wasn't ever going to win the golden boot, unfortunately. He probably needed to mop up a few goals in the group stages against your Macedonias, your Austrias, your, your Netherlands as well. But... Uh, there we are, unfortunately. It's a small price to pay for getting England into the semi-finals, isn't it, really? But, uh, yeah, it does seem that Ukraine weren't really... They weren't gelling. Yamalenko took a ball off Zinchenko, who could have hit it, really. And when they moved to a defensive four, I thought they were slightly better. Um, Yam- Yamchuk was working the channels quite well, and I thought he was... He, he, it was always a potential of a threat. It was never a fully grown, fully fledged threat. And I think Ukraine, out of the five teams that England have faced, with Germany providing more of the problems than any other team, you know, inarguably really. Um, probably on a par with Czech Republic, Ukraine, where in terms of their attacking chances against England, Czech Republic didn't really do much. Croatia didn't do much either. Scotland, probably aside from that Thomas Muller chance, have probably worked England and John Pickford more than any other team going into this. Um, I did think Ukraine were a bit more dangerous in a four. Zinchenko was more creative. Shaparenko was getting into the game more, but... Uh, that 20 minutes before half time, that was probably 10, 15, 20 minutes. They had a good spell, but of course, that England set piece just kills any momentum going. And then from then on, in, especially with the goals two and three becoming so close, it's just an England commanding of the game, then wasn't it? So obviously, now we ask can England win it? Can England win the European Championship? Is 55 years of hurt finally going to end? Well, Denmark had to come in the semi finals. Denmark. Obviously, I'd probably say they're a bigger test than Germany. Obviously, the game, the stakes have exponentially ramped up. Germany, last 16. Germany, of course, the prevailing powerhouse in European football of all time for me, as I've uh, previously stated on this podcast. Denmark, though, it's a semi-final. It's Wembley. Denmark have beaten England at Wembley in the past year. And uh, obviously, Omens from 1983. Denmark got to the semi-finals of the European Championships the following year. Who did they knock out to get there? England. And that was their win at Wembley, wasn't it, of course. Denmark are probably less predictable than Germany. Germany's width and their joy in this tournament came from out wide in the 3-4-3, which is why which is why Gareth Southgate matched them up, really, wasn't it, in a 3-4-3. I don't think he'll... Mason Mount's in the squad, so... I don't think he'll go to a 3-4-3 purely because of Mason Mount, because you'd either have to keep Mason Mount in the in the squad and drop Calvin Phillips or Declan Rice, which I don't see happening whatsoever. And I think that Denmark offer a lot more than just wide play than what Denmark than what Germany did really. And despite the semi-final being a lot bigger than the last 16, it is at home and maybe that's the pressures are ramped up there for, for one. Um I do think it's going to be a lot harder, a lot harder game. Jakim Myler will be uh, probably the widest uh, threat for, for Denmark. But as we've seen yesterday, Strigger Larsson was pretty handy on the right-hand side as well. And in terms of tempering expectations, we're not going to say it's coming home. But um, <laughs> Ukraine in the quarter-final, quarter-final opponents there, they were shattered. Three goals come from set-pieces and crosses, so maybe that's something that Denmark will probably have a bit of an advantage for aerially with, you know, Yannick Vestergaard, Simon Kerr. Andreas Christensen and 
Ukraine, as I stated before, amongst the poorer teams at the knockout stage, really, and probably alongside Czech Republic, the weakest team that England have faced so far whilst they've been in the groove. Obviously, Scotland, inarguably, unfortunately, the weakest team they've faced, but they couldn't get into it for some reason or another. They've ramped the expectations of the game up far too much in that group stage. Is more than an echo in 1996 about that one. And Ukraine probably didn't offer nearly as much. You know, that one tame chance from Yaramchuk was... It was probably it was easily the closest Ukraine had, and it, it was their only chance really in anger. There was a Sidar truck shot that went miles wide, but that wasn't really troubling anybody, was it really? So England move on to Wednesday, and they move on to Denmark. We will be covering the Denmark game against Czech Republic. We'll also be giving you a 2021 trivial teaser after this short, short break. Welcome back. Well done to the following who tweeted me at whatif underscore YouTube, which is our Twitter account, of course. That being Jake, Dean and George. Well done to all three of you who got Antoine Griezmann correct. Today I'm a goalkeeper, though. I'm the opposite of an Antoine Griezmann, a striker. I am a goalkeeper. I've been managed by Ralph Ragnick and Felix Magat. Some of my teammates have been Zé Roberto, Ivan Rakitic, Roberto Lewandowski, Peter Lovenkranz and Thiago Alcantara, that man again, and... Uh, for those in the back, I am a goalkeeper. I've been managed by Ralph Ragnick, Felix Magat, I've been played alongside Zeriboto, Ivan Rakitic, Robert Lewandowski, Peter Lovenkranz, and Thiago Alcantara. If you think you know the answer, tweet me like those fine lads did, Jake, Dean, and George, and tweet me at whatif underscore YouTube. The answer will be revealed on tomorrow's show, where you will find out the answer. So, after this short break, we'll be covering Denmark 2, Czech Republic 1, and of course, previewing the semi-finals where England occupy again. Welcome back. So we go to Baku, we go to Asia, we leave Europe and uh, still remain in the European Championships regardless. Denmark 2, Czech Republic 1. It was an unchanged Denmark team from the side who thrashed Wales 4-0 in the last 16. Meanwhile, Jan Bossiel was back from suspension for Czech Republic in a little left-back role. So... Denmark went back to a back three for the most part anyway and um, after also stymieing Wales with the uh, Andreas Christensen dropping into the midfield as he did in the uh, in the last 16 game there and to be fair Denmark shot out of the blocks didn't they Thomas Delaney header Czech Republic conceding from set pieces which stunned me in the game really and uh, they're supposed to be a team that uh, are one of the most prevailing dominant forces from set pieces you know with Thomas Hollish Thomas Suchek, Vladimir Sufal, obviously the uh, defenders of centre-halves, you know, as Chaluska and Kalas are supposed to be like big domineering forces. And uh, Denmark really, despite um, me saying Germany were very predictable in going out wide in terms of England in their last 16 match, Denmark were extremely direct from wide in this game. Mikkel Damsgaard were found over the top. He almost had a chance. It just trickled. It wasn't quick enough and it just got cleared off the line there, wasn't it? And uh, I thought Strigger Larsson, I don't know who won the man of the match for this game, but Sugar Larson deserved it. He was prevalent on the right throughout, really. Um, Thomas Delaney arrived from deep for a chance, but just missed out, unfortunately, there. And uh, Mikkel Damsgaard, we'd seen him linking up with Joachim Myler on the left. Um, here, though, he was uh, he's, he's given a free role in, his, in the national team, and he was found more on the right, occupying the right channel more, probably because Sugar Larson was the most dangerous of the wing-backs. But the second goal came from the left, and oh my God, oh my God, what an assist. I spoke about the Raheem Sterling slide rule pass through those four yellow Ukrainian shirts. My God, this is a sister of the tournament. I I can't give it enough praise. Joachim Myler is on a par. 
almost on a par with Leandro, Leonardo uh, Spinazzola for me for left-backs at the tournament. And Milo, what a pass that was with the outside of his right foot. Oh, my God. I just loved it. It was fantastic. It was one of those things that you just sit and just watch. That's why you watch football. Uh, yeah, I loved it. I love outside of the boot passes. And uh, as you could probably tell, Casper Dahlberg, duly obliged, sticking in the net. Quite measured and quite calm, side-footed volley as well. It was just a, it was just a gorgeous goal all round, wasn't it? And um, Milo was just continuously offensive as he has been throughout the entire tournament. He's been absolutely fantastic, and he will be one of those huge threats for the game coming up in the semi-finals for England, and that's probably why I think that Southgate will stick with a four-three-three. Although that doesn't make sense in that little bit there, but Kyle Walker can get up and down. He can. Sort of track him. I think he will. Uh, he will have to do that because otherwise Denmark will have some joy. So, what did Czech Republic do? How did they fare? Well, Patrick Schick. He was obviously the main danger man for Czech Republic, wasn't he? he was uh, he was getting into the channels. He was cutting in. He had a decent enough chance deflected out wide, uh, but uh, Massa pushed as well. He looked fairly decent when he was cutting into the box. He was carrying in. And he looked. He had that one chance, didn't he? Where he looked very composed and very measured, and he laid it off but the chance was saved and Czech Republic was always on the always on the precipice um, and it was Thomas, Thomas Hollesch who um, he was laying the ball off to there and surprisingly how Czech Republic have got a very good double pivot that uh, both box to box and Hollesch surprises me and how far he gets up the pitch so Czech as well doesn't do as much of that than what he does for West Ham admittedly because he's got Declan Rice in there and again Suchek is in that double pivot with Declan Rice and Rice is completely different for his national team to compared to his club team because uh, for West Ham, Rice bombs on. Where for England, is a lot more reserved because Calvin Phillips is the more energetic of the two in that respect. And it's probably the same here for Suchek, but obviously at the inverse here. Sufal, I thought, had a fantastic game as well. And I said uh, yesterday that he's probably the more underrated Czech Republic player that people necessarily aren't looking out for. And uh, like Strigalas, he was rampaging down the right and of course, he provided the goal, didn't he, for Patrick Schick to get the goal back. Kernicek was uh, very, very lively when he came on after the break. He looked like classic number nine target man. He uh, hit a shot which was fairly well saved and then teed up a teammate for a different chance altogether. And he looked as though he brought a bit of impetus to Czech Republic's play. And also, it, it's no coincidence when he came on three minutes later, they get a goal back and they start the second half very, very well. Uh, they were starting to get into coming to the game widen from set pieces, which could be an avenue that, uh, of course, Southgate will be looking at. And looking from from the game in Rome, for England's game, all of the goals came from wide. Obviously, the two corners, uh, the, the free kick, the corner, and the Harry Kane header, the second one, those were all crosses. Raheem Sterling was a pass from out wide. So, I mean, simply enough, same again from England on Wednesday night, and maybe looking how uh, dangerous Czech Republic were on the uh, flanks and out wide and in the channels. That could be an avenue that England sort of use for the upcoming semi-final. I just can't stop thinking about semi-final England again. But anyway, Denmark had a bit of a tactical change again The uh, when they were, they were kind of struggling towards the end of the game, weren't they? Let's be honest, um, Czech Republic were getting more and more desperate. They switched that midfield three again to close the game out and it's going to be a bit of a blinking contest, isn't it? A staring contest, rather. That's the complete opposite. And uh, it's going to be a bit of a staring contest, really, in terms of the managers, Hulman and uh, Southgate, in terms of who uses their prevailing system, who uses the 3-4-3, who uses the 4-3-3. Will they match each other? Will they attempt to match each other? Of course, um, I think I think now it's 
Southgate's just going to stick with a 4-3-3 because if if not, Declan Rice can do what the inverse of what Christensen does and drop deep into the defensive three. Obviously, Mount's very, very hard working in terms of tracking back in midfield and it's almost could be a 3-4-3 with Rice, Stones, Maguire in the defensive three, Walker, right wing back, Luke Shaw, left wing back and then Mount and Phillips in the, in the midfield too, which uh, could work if... That's what uh, Denmark choose to do and Southgate indeed chooses to match him up. Alternatively, it could be just the same again from uh, last night and a 4-3-3. But of course, of course, we will see that on Wednesday, won't we? So, are Denmark running out of steam? Well, obviously we all know the story. Um, the two games running high on emotion. and I've been trying not to judge them from those first two games because they are completely, completely out of the realm of what's acceptable to put a football team through and the more the displays where the emotion was gone from the game so the Russia game the the Wales game and this game now this is where this is this is they've leveled out in terms of the mental state I think obviously it's still going to be slight slightly heightened but that's always going to be the case isn't it in the uh, with the campaign that they've had really um they were comfortable enough here Denmark obviously they didn't put four past their opponents but their opponents were a lot better than the teams have faced and um, Wales were easily stymied with that sl- slight tactical tweak with Christensen going to the midfield. And here enough, they didn't they didn't need to be cute or astute tactically. They just played their rambunctious game, got balls into the box, delivered some fantastic chances for the uh, front men, and obviously took them. Um, but they were hanging on by the end. Something that they haven't had to do. In the entire tournament, obviously the Belgium game side, but as I say, I'm not judging uh, the Denmark team on that one really because I think it's slightly unfair to do so when they quite clearly weren't playing. They weren't playing football that they ordinarily would because of the extenuating circumstances really. But in terms of teams they faced, uh, you know, Russia forward when they're playing their natural game and emotions uh, put out of the window. Denmark haven't faced a big team yet, which obviously is is a uh, criticism, which I, I don't see why you could be criticised for something like this, um, that has been levelled with England, really, um, in the, especially in 2018. And even now, even, even after the Germany game, people will be saying, me included, that Denmark is probably the biggest task because I think Denmark are probably a bit more nuanced than uh, Germany were going forward and will be a bigger threat but to call Germany not a big team is, is something completely different. And I don't think they have, because they're a big team, they've got the, most of their players, apart from, I think, maybe Matthias Ginter, who had won a Champions League. So, I mean, how can you not call them a big team? <laughs> it's just beggar's belief for me, really. But uh, in terms of Denmark, this is obviously the biggest, sternest test they've faced. And if they are running out of steam, obviously they've done a lot, they've clocked up a lot on the... Uh, the old air miles there for this game, at least the past few games, Copenhagen and then Amsterdam, akin to a bit like uh, England's travel schedule, really, and that just been London and now Rome and then back to London. But obviously, Baku, we don't know how much that Baku trip's going to take out of them, of course, but uh, we will see on Wednesday night. So it's probably the it's probably going to be the toughest test that England have faced. Obviously, the occasion obviously being a semi-final at home again the emotions could take over a little bit and the pressure will be so much more than the Germany game because it's fine to get to a semi-final these a lot of these players have got to a semi-final before 
but then it's another thing entirely to get to a final, which is for me, a, well, for most people, a once in a lifetime thing for England, for the England team. So there's that little, maybe that sort of inertia that might stop them from pushing on and going that extra distance. But I have no doubts that maybe Southgate will reel them in again. It's obviously a big thing to get to a semi-finals. They've only done it three times in European Championship history, you know. And one of them were in 1968 when it was one game at the tournament they were out, essentially. In terms of 96, also, home advantage. So they've never... Obviously, it's home advantage here in 2021, but they've never done it quite like this. They've never beaten a big team at a European Championship before. In the entire history of it, really, that you know, 2012 drew to France. 2016 didn't play any big teams. Yeah, beat Wales, but you know, maybe yeah, they were a surprise package, but they weren't a big team by any stretch of the imagination. In terms of previous history, I can't see anything really in terms of big teams beating Spain potentially you can say Spain um, in that terms of that semi in terms of that quarter final penalty shootout from 96 but that's uh, for me it's a bit of a stretch with Spain in 96 and nowhere near the team they are now they know nowhere near the team they were a decade ago so Denmark what will they provide they've got a threat both out wide with obviously the wing backs Strigel Larsen's come into the tournament in the past few games I feel obviously Joachim Meil is a huge danger man have we seen I love him to bits, really, but from a neutral standpoint, obviously it's going to be a lot different on Wednesday night. Hoiberg is a lot more creative than what he is um, for his club team. Um, Thomas Delaney, he's shown in this past game here that he can arrive in the box deep and late and do Frank Lampard stuff and <laughs> Mikel Damsgaard as well. Fantastic creative outlet. Of course, you've got Yusuf Poulsen, who looked fairly bright when he came on here. Kasper Dahlberg, who obviously now is finding his groove in terms of goal scoring. And it could be the fact that England might not face the prospect of going a goal down in this game and the perhaps the seven clean sheets in a row for England not conceding, not going, not facing any real adversity. That, uh, that might trouble them. It could, might have done them good to go one goal down to Germany and then come back. But of course, you could go through an entire tournament not conceding the first goal and it doesn't matter obviously these are all different scenarios that haven't even happened yet trying to preview them is quite hard I think I think the key will be Andreas Christensen and Declan Rice's positions will they be flexible will Rice go back into a defensive three will Christensen come out of the defensive three and obviously both players are hugely flexible in their uh, their approach and that makes for quite the enticing prospects of course and what it already is because it's an England semi-final in a European Championship I think there's a lot of people who are trying to temper their own expectations but we're in a semi-final that's going along for the ride now I think when you get over the quarter-final hurdle it's a lot different the quarter-final we've um, as English people anyway we've experienced that countless occasions you know 2002 2004 2006 you know from my lifetime anyway from uh, from my experiences, my first tournament with France 98, for example, and a lot of people who probably listen to this podcast are likely to be the same. So it, it's something a bit further along, isn't it? It's the semi-final, it's a bit more grander, and obviously we haven't won a semi-final, we've only won one semi-final ever. In, uh, well, 1968 we lost that one, 1990 lost that one, of course, 96, 2018. So this will be a whole new era, and of course, awaiting... England in the final should they get there of course awaiting Denmark potentially if they get there as well is the other semi-final Spain versus Italy another 
another intriguing prospect because both teams, they love possession. They're both chance creation machines, aren't they, really? Spain create chances like no other. It could be the irresistible force meeting the immovable object. Italy have the best defence at the tournament. Maybe that's England now, but um, in terms of goals prevented and chances given up, Italy's defence is like no other, really. Um, the only thing going into it for Italy is they might rue the injury to Spinazzola. Alternatively, it could be a blessing in disguise for um, Emerson Palmieri if he stays further back, with Spain obviously potentially pinning Italy back. Might be a blessing in disguise, but of course Emerson Palmieri can do what Spinazzola does, but just less effective. Maybe Chiro Mobley needs to come a bit more alive, especially for my fantasy team, because he's not scored for a few games now, but... Uh, he might need to come alive in this uh, in this game for Italy to prevail. We can, I think it's safe to say, expect Giorgio Chiellini and Leonardo Bonucci to nullify their Juventus teammate, Alvaro Morata, of course. And um, for me, the key for Spain to win this game is the wide men. It's Pablo Sarabia, it's Gerard Moreno, it's Danny Olmo, it's you know, the fullbacks, Jordi Alba especially. Says Aristide Cueta, as uh, some commentators have been calling him. I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation. Maybe we've all been pronouncing it wrong this entire time. But that is the key for Spain in terms of winning this football match. Get them wide men into it, and uh, maybe look for Morata if Mar- if Moreno does play. Interchange Morata and Moreno. I've seen Morata doing tireless work out wide in the channels, and you know if they interchange quite well, it could be uh, could slightly. Uh, disturb Emerson Palmieri should he come in at left back of course but that is the uh, assumption here Italy have passed their sternest test beating the world number one in Belgium of course uh, the defence looked as comfortable as ever really there there were a few chances for Lukaku of course which we discussed yesterday meanwhile Spain haven't faced like uh, going down the Denmark route again Spain haven't faced a truly good team they were uh, they did beat Croatia yes of course um, but they were a shambles defensively and that's the best team they've met in terms of um, head-to-head, Italy have three wins, Spain have two. The last time Italy beat Spain in a tournament was 1994, and since then Spain have got two wins under their belt in the three meetings. Of course, a 2012 final, and of course, a latter-stage knockout win in 2008, which was really the turning point for Spain in terms of dominance, international football, international tournament dominance with the penalty shootout win, with that Cesc Fabregas goal, and I'm sure that will be replayed again and again and again in Italian and Spanish homes, and maybe in English homes when we watch it on Tuesday night. With those two teams qualifying alongside England and Denmark, it does mean that all semi-finalists have played all three group games at home, which does that mean it's an unfair advantage? I'm sure a lot of um, a lot of Welsh fans who have had to travel to Baku and then to Rome, and Swiss fans as well who had to do, go to Baku twice, with Rome in the middle, which is worse in so many ways so and we obviously saw Switzerland you know crumble under the pressure of a second penalty shootout when you might have thought that having the recent experience under the belt that they might not obviously with Spain's poor record on penalties obviously notwithstanding the Italy win in 2008 the Portugal win in 2012 but of course Russia 2018 the poor penalties from open play but enough about all that it proves to be a very exciting week of football now, doesn't it? Seven days to go until the European Championship final and who knows who will occupy them. We've got Spain, we've got Italy, we've got England, we've got Denmark and we'll cover all of it. We've got some rewinds in and amongst the semi-finals beforehand and afterwards in the build-up to the final and of course we'll be here until July the 12th on the Euro Daily podcast.
And until tomorrow, silly. It is coming home. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.